All right. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're working our way through 1 Timothy. And we are on verse 6 right now. And in verse 6, it speaks of Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. And this verse that he gave himself a ransom for all, we looked last week at what it, meant, it means to have given himself as a ransom. What does it mean that Jesus gave himself as a ransom? We talked about that. And we talked about the, a ransom is given uh, to uh, set someone free. For instance, it was used in those days of setting someone free uh, from captivity, uh, from prison. And it's a payment that's made to set someone free from prison. And Jesus certainly did that in shedding his blood. But we also looked at it how the word ransom is also used of the actual act of setting them free. The ransom could be paid, but then uh, when someone is set free, the Bible speaks of them as being ransomed. That's when the application of what Jesus did on the cross for the world is applied to someone's life. And we talked about that. And I said the next week we will look at the fact that he gave himself as a ransom for who? For all. He gave himself as a ransom for all. And that should be simple enough to just say, okay, praise God, he died for everybody, amen? Let's just move on to the next verse. But it's not that simple in the day and age in which we live because the idea that Jesus died for all is under assault. The goodness, you know, of the good news is under attack today. We're being told, yeah, he died for me. I'm a special elect one, but I don't know that he died for the, I don't believe he died for the world. I don't believe he died for everyone. I believe he died for just an elect group. And, and I think I'm in that group because you really can't know for sure that you're in that group, which is kind of scary, you know? And, uh, and at the same time, I want to say, and I say this quite often, that those who differ on this subject, there are those who believe that people that believe Jesus didn't die for everybody are preaching a different gospel. I believe they're limiting the gospel, but I believe they still are teaching that Jesus died for sins. And some will write Calvinists or Reformed people that teach that Jesus didn't die for all off as false brethren. I don't do that. I believe, uh, I, 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 I had a talk with a very well-known uh, writer and preacher uh, on the phone because he was basically took that viewpoint and all of a sudden he was dividing with a lot of his Calvinistic brethren and I let him know, I said, hey, Peter, the apostle Peter believed in a limited atonement. Atonement is what Christ did for us on the cross, paying for our sins. I go, apostle Peter believed for a period of time that the atonement was limited just to the Jews. Remember the book of Acts? And then the Lord dropped the sheet before him three times to show unclean meat and that don't call what I've clean, said is clean, unclean, right? And Peter repented of his viewpoint. But was he lost prior to that time? Throughout the book of Acts? No. In fact, God was using him wonderfully. So I believe people could have a jaded view of who Jesus died for and still love the Lord deep down and, and, and they're still preaching the gospel. They're not preaching the extent of his goodness. They're limiting his grace for the world. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that they're lost. And we have to watch ourselves and make sure that we recognize that's by God's grace that we stand. It's by God's grace that we know that what we know and that knowledge without love is very detrimental, amen? We need to love those who disagree with us, amen? 
and it's an in-house dispute. But it's something that we should be talking about because if I'm at the kitchen table with my kids and we're all there and, you know, somebody says, you know, mom doesn't really love everybody. She just loves a few of us. Not even kids. Let's say it's the neighborhood ki- neighbor's kids over too. So it's not just family. And Lisa says, I love all of you. She says, mom, you don't love everyone. You just love some of these people. You don't love a lot of these people that are in here right now. And then there'd probably be a debate. So we could, you know, uh, there'd be a vigorous debate by me to say, hey, don't bring false an act, false accusation against mom. Don't bring, don't bear false witness. That's one of the Ten Commandments even, right? Saying your mom doesn't love everybody here. That's wrong. Well, how much worse is it to say that God doesn't truly love the world and he only wants to save a few? If God has made it clear that he does love the world, that's a serious, serious problem. And uh, our text before us today, as we work through 1 Timothy, says, that of Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, for all, for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Now, just before that, we read in verse four, what? Of, of the Lord God. He desires who? God, our Savior, by the way, it's the context, verse three, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen? And by the way, the word desire, some say, well, that Greek word, it's not the strongest Greek word for desire, but the stronger Greek word, uh, bulimai, for desire is used in 2 Peter 3, 9, where God doesn't will that any which perish will, the stronger word, but all would come to repentance. Amen? So the stronger word's used there. So you can't escape. Uh, you can't say, well, it could have been a stronger word. A stronger word is used in 2 uh, Peter 3, 9, if you want to call it a stronger word. I can actually show you where they're all sometimes used interchangeably. But the point is, is that he desires all men to be saved. And by the way, I quoted a very popular Calvinist called, by Calvinists, the Prince of Preachers, who at 2.4 states that Calvinists, his fellow Calvinists are reading into the text in 2.4, saying that the word desires all men. When they say it doesn't really mean all men, it just means all sorts of men in, in different places. It means all of, you know, some men of all people. And, and Spurgeon said, no. He goes, some of our older Calvinistic divines would try, we're trying to work their text or their, their viewpoint, their theology into the text. It's called eisegesis, by the way. Exegesis is getting out from the text what it says. Eisegesis is reading in the text what you want it to say. And Spurgeon, I gave you a long quote. If you go back and you want to listen to the message of 1 Timothy 2.4, I gave a long block quote from Spurgeon where he says, hey, I know how to get rid of dolls. If I want to get rid of all, I know how to do it. He goes, but that it's not biblically right to do that here in 1 Timothy 2.4 because he says that the Holy Spirit wanted to say that God really only wanted to save some men. He, wouldn't, he would have said that. But here he says he wants to, he wants to save all men. However, in 1.6, <laughs> guess what? He gave himself a ransom for who? All. Now, I don't know what Spurgeon does with that because Spurgeon believed in limited atonement because the all all of a sudden carries through to verse 6, right? And the context here, let's, not, let's, let's acknowledge the context. The context begins with Paul defending the gospel in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verses 15 and 16, saying it's a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief. The context is he, say, he died even for who? The worst sinner. That whoever comes to him will be accepted. Amen? He goes, that he saved me, Paul says, so everybody would know if they came to him, they too would be accepted. They don't have to wonder, did Jesus die for me? Does he really love me? Does God really want me to be saved? They could know that. And therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, pray for everyone without, without any kind of qualification. Pray for everyone. 
And then he mentions a subset of everyone because these are the people that are most likely to be overlooked when you pray because Nero was having Christians killed. He says, pray for kings, right? Leaders, those who are in authority because Christians can tend to leave them off their prayer list because they're persecuting us. So Paul's saying, hey, don't just pray for me, pray for Nero. Probably the wickedest, I would call him the chief of sinners. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Like Paul's right though. Because that's scripture. So Nero's not a far second or third or fourth from Paul. And if God's willing to save Paul, and he did, he's willing to save Nero, Nero and he was supposed to pray for everyone. Why? Because God wills that all be saved, verse four. Wow, verse six, because he gave himself a ransom for all. That's the context. But right now, this idea that Jesus died for everyone is under assault. And you can listen to a lot of popular teachers when you're driving down the road, and I know people do. I mean, I've had people come in here recently, just in the last month or so, saying they go to a church or that where they're, they've doubted their salvation for years. A couple different people. They felt like they were reprobate. And they're so happy to hear what I'm preaching. And that's why they're visiting fellowship. I'm like, wow, it's good timing. It's the text we're in right now. My daughter Holly said, Dad, people don't know because when you preach like you do, people don't realize how many people out there are getting blessed because... You're, they think, oh, we know this as a fellowship, but they don't realize you're not just preaching to the fellowship. You have a wide audience, and you're also getting the hearts of people that need to hear this message because they're constantly hearing the other side. I said, no, I'm aware of that. I think a lot of people in the church are as well. And we need to be better versed in this because our conviction of what the scriptures say, what the scriptures actually say about who Jesus died, died for, is under assault. And just as if someone was bearing false witness against my wife telling people that she just loves a few people, I would be defending her so people would know her true character. Far more will I defend my God because people coming to Christ or not depends a lot on how they view him and whether they view him as omnibenevolent or if they look at him as a monster who created them to be tormented forever for his glory. This do doctrine matters, guys. Doctrine matters. Now, it's interesting there's not one, even though this is a controversy, and, and it's a reform movement, the Calvinists that teach TULIP, which is the, the acronym for total depravity. People are so depraved, they could never come to Christ, uh, and they have to be born again before they can actually come to faith in Christ. Now, we believe we're totally depraved. We don't believe that we come to Christ on our own. We believe that left alone, we'll just keep going the wrong way, amen? Heaping up wrath for ourselves. But God, by his grace, his prevenient grace, his resplendent grace, draws us. Jesus said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he'll draw who? All men to himself, amen? And the grace of God that brings salvation, it says, has appeared to all men. In John 1, 9, Jesus enlightens the heart of everyone that comes into the world, amen? John chapter 16, 8 through 11, he convicts the world of sin. He has not left himself without a witness. Those who reject him, it says, are without excuse, amen? Every mouth will be shut, now, it's important for us to understand that God is full of grace, and we believe we're totally depraved, but we, we believe we have to come to faith in Christ, put our trust in Christ, and then we'll be born again, amen? The teaching of total depravity among Calvinists, so I reject their view of total depravity, is that you're first born again. Some Calvinists teach you're born again when you're a little baby, and then later on you'll come to faith. Well, my Bible says he that's born again does not practice sin. So how, why would someone have to repent if they're not practicing sin and they're already born again years earlier? It makes no sense. And every, nowhere in Scripture does it say, you must be born again, then you will have faith. Over and over again, it says, repent unto life. Believe unto life. The faith always comes before the regeneration. Now, it's interesting. This is, and the total depravity, that's, you got T, T, you got U from the tulip. The U is unconditional election. 
Meaning God's choice of people is unconditional. You have no choice in your salvation. Which contradicts the scripture which says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, make your calling and election sure. Okay? The Bible tells us that you have a responsibility. And if you read the book of Romans, election comes through faith in Christ. And God, whom he's for, who he foreknew, he predestined. It's not based on God's foreknowledge. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that we are, that's uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, that we are the elect of God, of God according to his foreknowledge. He knows who will respond to the gospel and who will not. Uh, elections conditional, T-U-L, L, T-U-L-I-P. The L stands for limited atonement. Since we're totally depraved, and you must be born again before you can even believe, and God's unconditionally damned most people, but there's people he's unconditionally saved, the L is he's limited his atonement. Christ only died for a few people compared to the many that will perish. And then the T-U-L-I stands for irresistible grace. Since Jesus died for you and you're unconditionally elected, God will irresistibly save you because you really have no ultimate choice in it, but God will give you a new nature that helps you make the choice and that you won't truly ever fall away from that choice. Hence, the next letter, P, T-U-L-I-P, perseverance of the saints. You'll persevere in your faith automatically uh, through faith because God's given you the gift of faith and you've been unconditionally elected. That's the acronym TULIP, but in the heart of the TULIP is the L, limited atonement. That Jesus only died, limits the grace of God. Limited atonement that he limited what he did for humanity on the cross. They only died for the elect. And then when you look at that, that's undermined so many verses like the one before us in 1 Timothy 2.6, where it says he gave himself as a ransom for who? Does it say for the elect there? It says for all. How would, Paul, how would the Lord expect people to read this when Paul's called himself the chief of sinners and anybody could come to him? You can ask questions afterwards because I'm on tape. Sounds great. Why would, who would he expect to come to him, right? How would, how would, you know, why would Paul say, God say, you can come to me, whoever you are? And then mention, pray for everyone. He gave himself a ransom for all, and God wills that all be saved. But have us really mean, think he means something totally different than what he's written. Now, it's interesting. This is so concerned because it has, it gives a huge concern regarding practical theology. How we view God. How you view God depends on how you worship him, how you respond to him, how you pray to him, how you live among others, how you see others. Jesus said to love your enemies. He says, then you'll be like the most high God because he loves his enemies. He does good to them. Well, it's not really loving your enemies if you predetermine that they'd be eternally damned without a choice from all eternity past. And everything is predetermined and fixed. And they're born into a world where it's scripted by decree where they must be evil. And then you blame them and torture them for all eternity for doing exactly what you decreed that they should do before they even existed. And they've only done what you've decreed, but then you're tormenting them forever when they could do nothing but. That's not the heart of our God. That God says to his own people, I built a hedge around you. I put a tower up, you know. I, I dug the stones out. I planted this vineyard. What more could have I done that I've done to you? But you produce sour grapes. He blames them. That's why we're without excuse. It's our fault. God is always holy, holy, holy. God is love, 1 John 4. 8. God is love, 1 John 4, 16. How do we know the, what the love of God is? Because he manifested it. It goes on to say through his atonement, his propitiation for our sins. And then it goes on to say he is the savior of the world. That's the love of God. But if you don't understand it, by the way, there's not one single verse in all the Bible 
that teaches that Jesus only died for the elect. Not one that says he only died for the elect. He only died for his sheep. He only died for the church. There's not one verse. But there's all kinds of verses that says he died for all. First, or Hebrews 2.9, he, he tasted death for everyone. That he died for the world. God so loved the world, they gave him God's son. Or he died for the whole world, the propitiation or payment not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. They died for the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous. He died for the ungodly. That he died for apostates, Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31, who trample underfoot his blood. That he died for false teachers, 2 Peter 2, 1. They deny him who bought them, the false teachers. That he, denied, that he died for Judas, look at Luke chapter 22. Jesus offers everybody, he says, this blood is shed for you, including Judas. And then it says Judas betrayed him and left. That he died for people, it says, that Paul said, you can cause someone to perish for whom Christ died. How can people perish for whom Christ died if everyone he died for is just the elect? Now, uh, by the way, we had a $10,000 offer regarding the time of the rapture. We have a $10,000 offer for anybody that produces one clear verse that says Jesus only died for the elect. I don't think anybody's going to tempt that. Because guess what? Calvinist leaders admit there's not a clear verse that says that. In fact, I had a debate with a five-point Calvinist who saw me witnessing on the streets and preaching the gospel years ago when I was a young pastor. And he said, I want to debate you. Because he said, I hope you're not telling people Jesus died for their sins. Because he first he tested me to see what I'd say to him. He goes, hey, that's a, you know, he, he thought, that's a good gospel presentation. I was just hoping you weren't going to say Jesus died for me because that's not scriptural. And I go, hey, I wouldn't have a problem saying that because I do believe he died for you. And they challenged me to debate. He used to be a pastor. He was an elder at a church at the time. We talked about when the debate would be. I said, let's do it about it. We decided to do about a year because he wanted at his church. There's a couple things that were going on there. One, our fellowship. I, I was a new pastor. I want them to grow a bit. He goes, no, my pastor doesn't want me to debate you at our church. He says, because too many people believe in our church what you believe. I'm thinking, good, they're reading their Bibles, you know. So we had a debate in our fellowship. And right before the debate, he calls me up and says, hey, Joe, I want to change the topic to another part of the acronym TULIP from limited atonement. I go, why? I go, that's what I've been gearing up for. He goes, because you have a lot of scripture you can go to. I have to use philosophy. I said, uh, we're having the debate. <laughs> you know, and I said, hey, that's what you challenged me on, man. You challenged me on who Jesus died for on the streets. I'm passionate about that more than any other point of Calvinism. I'll, you know, I'll fight for that one, man. And then we, uh, we did that. And I'll mention some of the things, one of the things that happened in the debate that I thought was quite interesting. But it's quite, it's this important topic. Why? Because people, how do you know Jesus died for you? How do you have any assurance of salvation if you can't be sure who he died for? Think about that. And that's why so many people struggle Jay Adams, and I like a lot of what Jay Adams has written. He's one of the leaders in the Christian counseling movement, biblical counseling movement. But he says as a Calvinist, when you're counseling, no counselor shall ever tell the counselee that Jesus died for them. Because no one can know who Jesus died for. No man knows who Jesus died for. I'm like, wow, I was counseling someone last night who's visited our church, probably been in our church just two or three times but struggled because she was in an abusive household growing up and didn't know the heart of God and wondered if God really loved her, you know? Could she really be saved? And I was able to emphasize God's love for her and that Christ died for her. 
And Jay Adams literally says in his book, Competent to Counsel, page 70, no man knows except Christ himself who are his elect and for whom he died. Really? So you can't even know if he died for you then. You don't know who he died for. How could you have any assurance of salvation? Which just really breaks my heart because John Piper, I've given the quote before in another message, but John Piper says, when I pray for my kids when his kids were younger, I pray for them. I, I hope God loves them as much as I do. I hope they're chosen. I couldn't imagine going to bed thinking God may have created my little kids because he wanted to burn them forever for his eternal glory. I thought, wow. I mean, he was literally in pain. And I'm sure he loves his kids a lot. But can you imagine the pain? But he wonders if they're elect or not, if God's chosen them or not, or if God loves them as much as he loves them. And I'm like, that's nuts to think that you can love somebody more than God loves them. And it gets really, really crazy, guys, because, you know, John MacArthur wrote a book called Saved Without a Doubt. And in that book, I think it's around page eight, seven, eight, or nine of that book, he talks about how he was doing a message on Second Peter, and every week through a course of eight weeks, different people were coming up to him every single week, a bunch of people talking about how they have no assurance of salvation, that they've never felt and believed that they were saved. That's a problem, John. And he's trying to clear it up with that book. And the book caused a lot of lack of assurance when people read the book. Because when you're teaching people that they're unconditionally damned and they don't have a choice ultimately in their salvation and any choice that you make, it's, well, if you do choose Christ, it's only because he made sure you chose him because he chose you, but most of the world's been reprobated. It's very serious. And a lot of Calvinists admit there's a huge problem with assurance of salvation. William Perkins, considered the father of the Puritan movement, the father of the Puritans, most read Calvinists in the latter part of the, or late 16, in the last half of the 1600s. He wrote 2,500 pages on assurance. That's equivalent to 10 books, 250 pages each, trying to help his people have assurance. Yet, at, yet he admitted at the end of his life he still didn't have assurance of salvation. I've been in the Netherlands preaching the love of God, asked to go to the Netherlands preaching to Dutch Reformed churches I've been there four or five times on crusades. And the brother, Bert Dornbost, older brother, awesome guy, he said, Joe, I thought you brought, I brought you out here to deal with these contemporary issues of Satanism, music, all this stuff. He goes, I brought you out here to preach the love of God because people were tripping out because they'd never heard about how God loves them. And when I had to do a salvation call at the end and talk about how God loves you, he wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. He doesn't will that any would perish, right? But that all would come to repentance and so forth, people would start talking. They'd be tripping out. I was like, when I'd give a salvation call at the end, I was, I was like, what did I say wrong? And then I realized every time I gave a salvation call at the end, I talked about God's love for everybody, it freaked people out. And then I had two different evangelists, street evangelists, come to me separately in tears, crying. One I had to have an interpreter because they barely understand. The other one spoke better English. And both saying, Joe, both saying the same story. We have churches of 2,000 people here in the Netherlands, and only two or three people. One or two, two or three, depending on which guy was talking to me, will take communion because everybody else feels like they're reprobate, that God didn't, Jesus didn't die for them, that they can't be saved. These guys are bawling. Thanks for coming. Please tell people about the love of God. It breaks my heart thinking about it because I can feel their pain even this day. Sorry. Sorry. 
I got a lot of notes. I got to keep going. I'm not going to be done in time. Now you know why I preach this, man. It's deep in my heart. It's, it's our God. It's his character. It's his love. It's the message of the gospel. And atheists are taking this idea that people are teaching that God wants most people to burn forever, and they're using that against the church. But that's not the picture God gives of himself. Amen? Now, man, I want to tell you a lot of stories about the Netherlands, but I don't have time to. Calvinistic leader, uh, a really good apologist, actually. See Michael Patton. He's a Calvinist blogger, blogger uh, from Credo House. He writes about the struggle his fellow Calvinists have with regarding assurance of salvation. This is just him being honest. Calvinists need to be honest with their problems because this is the fruit of false teaching. He says, it may surprise you to know that just about every contact I have had with people who are doubting their salvation are Calvinistic in their theology. In other words, they believe in unconditional election. These are the ones, now he's a Calvinist, the guy that's writing. These are the ones who believe in perseverance of the saints. These are the ones who believe that we cannot lose our salvation. Yet these are the ones who are doubting their faith the most. Their issue has to do with their election. Are they truly among the elect? If they are, they believe their faith will persevere until the end. But if they are not, there's no hope. But how are they to know for sure where they are elect? Maybe their faith is a stated faith. Maybe it's false. The gentleman I talked to today, talked to a gentleman that, that inspired this, this uh, blog, the gentleman I talked to today was so riddled with doubt, he was having thoughts of suicide. How do I know my faith is an elect faith? He wanted to assurance so badly, but felt that his Calvinistic theology prevented him from ever having such assurance. These are real problems in the body of Christ, guys. This is serious stuff, man. There's people who are hurting by the countless thousands throughout the day, robbing them of the joy that they should have, but also allowing Satan to afflict them. John Bunyan, Calvinist, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, an amazing book. Our friend, friend, Ben, Ben Price from Australia, he did one of the, three of the voices in that movie. Should be visiting us before too long. Great brother. But Bunyan struggled because a lot of people don't know about his other book, which I bought, called, or, called Grace Abounding, or actually it was sent to me, called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in that book, he talks about how he feels like a reprobate and God didn't choose him. And that he preaches effectively because he believes like the rich man who went to Hades, that he's like the rich man, but God let him go on a chain so he could preach to others and warn people not to go there. And he constantly asks the question. In the book, he says he was haunted by the question, am I really one of the elect? Abraham, Abraham Cowper, who inspired the song Amazing Grace by John Newton, because he was John Newton's assistant, and he wrote all these hymns. He wrote songs that look like they're heavy metal, dark, evil, wicked songs about how he's damned forever and has no choice in salvation. Getting in a mental hospital for some time. This is serious stuff. I've dealt with a number of Calvinists through the years that I've had to counsel regarding the love of God and encourage them who've had those kinds of backgrounds. There's a guy I'm thinking about now who was taught Calvinism, came to this church, and 
he still struggled with the, what he was taught about predestination, even though he knew it was wrong. It haunted him regarding his own assurance for years. And another guy came here for a few years and never had assurance. Came here thinking he wasn't one of the elect, left here thinking he wasn't one of the elect. He didn't, I, he didn't come on Wednesday nights when I was preaching on Calvinism a lot. And I preached on it one Sunday, and it was the last Sunday he was here because he wanted to hold to his Calvinism, but he felt he was unconditionally damned. Well, it's interesting because, now think about this. This is where it gets really theological and why it's so hard as a Calvinist to have assurance of salvation if you're truly a Calvinist. Because Calvinists and non-Calvinists, most non-Calvinists, we all believe you have to persevere in the end for the most part. I'm not talking about, you know, sleazy grace, you know, uh, uh, the kind of... Uh, you know, cheap grace that teaches you could just go up to a salvation call and then go fall away and do whatever you want and you're still going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's a lie. Okay, that's very popular doctrine. OSAS, once saved, always saved. Hey, I just came to Jesus, now I can do whatever I want. Paul says, don't be deceived. If you live like this, you will not inherit God's kingdom. It's a deception. But Calvinists generally teach, no, you have to persevere in your faith. And if you're elect, you will. Well, a lot of us non-Calvinists believe that, yeah, you have to persevere in your faith and you can fall away. The Calvinist says, well, if you fall away, you were never really there. The non-Calvinist says, if you, if you stop following Christ after claiming to be, follow Christ, you maybe were never there. Or maybe you were one of those people where it says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that mentions people who could forget that they were even saved from their past sins. You can get to that point, it says in 2 Peter 1.10. Forget that you were cleansed from your past sins, it says. You go back to your old life. So, the non-Calvinist and the Calvinists who hold the similar views that we have to persevere to the end, both recognize that you shouldn't have assurance if you're backslidden, amen? We recognize that we have, we have assurance if we're trusting Christ, amen? amen. And we all recognize that we should recognize that we won't be perfect until Jesus comes, amen? amen? And that we're growing in our salvation. But the question is, are, in our hearts, are we truly desiring to follow him and are we trusting him? The difference is, is the Calvinist has a bunch of baggage that lends to him not being able to have assurance. It's not the idea that you need to persevere or else, because that's what the Bible teaches, and that you're not supposed to have assurance. If you're, if you're going and getting drunk with the drunkards, and you're chasing women and, and doing all these wicked things, you shouldn't have assurance. Read First John. If you're practicing sin, man, you gotta, he that's born of God does not practice sin. So God, you shouldn't have assurance. But if you're trusting Jesus, you should have assurance, amen? But why do the non-Calvinists, or I should say, why do the Calvinists struggle so much? As Patton said, I'm quoting, I'm quoting Calvinists here. I had three children like Piper did. But when I prayed for Josiah, and I prayed for Holly, and I prayed for Heather, it never once crossed my mind that God may not love them like I love them. I only prayed to love them like he loves them already. I had no doubt Jesus died for them. The only question was, are they going to trust him? Are they going to follow? But if I believe, as the Calvinist believes, you must persevere to the end, we both believe that. How come I could have such assurance? And so many Calvinists struggle because there's a bunch of things, of a lot of Calvinistic baggage they have to carry. And that Calvinistic baggage includes many Calvinists have taught that God doesn't love most people in a salvific way. That he doesn't truly want others to be the lost, most lost be saved. So you have to wonder, does God really love me in a salvific way? We don't have to wonder that, amen? Number two, they have to wonder, 
whether or not Jesus really died for them. That is a Calvinist, and there are many. Most Calvinists that are, call themselves Calvinists believe in limited atonement. They, have to, they wonder, did Jesus die for me? Did he really die for me or not? So you have to wonder, does he really love me in a salvific way? Did he really die for me? Number two. And number three, did God create me to be reprobated? Because Calvinism teaches, like John Piper teaches, which John Calvin himself taught, double predestination. Double predestination that God wants to damn most people. Because Jesus said, in a straight gate, right? Narrow is the gate that leads to life, and, you know, straight is the way that leads to life, but fewer are those who find it. But broad is the gate that leads to destruction. Many are those that are on that. But it's taught that God gets glory out of creating people to be damned. And we could talk about infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism, but it all boils down to this. In Calvinism, everything, true Calvinism, everything you do is determined by God, predetermined. Every sin you commit. I have Calvin's book on predestination, he wrote. And he says, all the wicked thoughts of men are all predetermined by God before they're created. Every child molester, that was all predetermined by God. They couldn't do anything but what was predetermined. That is turning, I'm sorry, that's a reality. That's turning God into a monster. That's not the biblical God. That's not the God of love. Who says in, Jer in Jeremiah chapter 7, that you're sacrificing your children in the fire to the Baals. This never even came into my mind, he says. I never decreed it. He didn't decree that that would happen. It wasn't his heart. But Calvin, now, you have to wonder if Jesus died, loves you. You have to wonder if he really died for you. You have to wonder if you were created to be reprobated. And you say, but, but I have some assurance because I have faith. I have some fruit in my life. There's evidence that I'm a Christian. Therefore, as a Calvinist, I, I can still have some assurance. But really, you can't. Not if you really follow Calvin's teaching. Because Calvin taught what he called evanescent grace. Calvin taught what's called evanescent means disappearing. It's temporary faith. Calvin says that God gives certain people temporary faith. Where they even have what looks like evidences of salvation. And he gives it to them to, and he deludes them with it, he says. And then after they feel they're saved for some time, then he withdraws it from them so he can damn them all the more. Does that sound like our God, by the way? No. no. That's what Calvin taught. I mean, and he did this because he was trying to get around Hebrews chapter 6 and all these incredible experiences they have in Hebrews 6 and then fall away. So he's trying to say, this is, a, this is a professing Christian who has given all these wonderful experiences, but then God withdraws it from him so he can damn him all the more. And he gives them a measure of grace, really, to make them think they're saved. That's called deception. My Bible says that God cannot do evil, that God cannot be tempted, and he doesn't tempt any man. Amen? Amen. Well, Theodore Beza was Calvin's, his, uh, not son, but his son-in-law married his daughter. And when Calvin died, he became the de facto leader of Calvinism. And he became more scholastic, and he systemized a lot of Calvin's teachings. And listen to what he taught. And so many people, they began to follow his son-in-law to, to define Calvinism. And he taught this. He taught that God gave this evanescent grace so when people would fall and God withdrew it from them, their fall would be all the more grievous. Kind of like Calvin. 
He says, there are yet others whose hearts God openeth to receive, God openeth to receive, and believe the things that they hear. But this is with a general faith, whereby the devils believe and tremble, to conclude they which are most miserable of all, those who climb a degree higher, that their fall might be more grievous. So they are raised so high by some gift of grace, meaning God gives them a gift of grace, so that they, so that they are a little moved with some taste of the heavenly gift. And then he says, they are forsaken by God who hardeneth them and blindeth them and by the spirit of lies. I'm sorry, that's not God, guys. That's not the biblical God. He gives you a measure of grace, a gift of grace that's just less than salvation. So you think you're saved and then later in life he withdraws it from you. How many Calvinists think, oh, I have salvation, but they've just been given evanescent grace, a gift of grace that's temporary. So you can't know as a Calvinist because he teaches that it's indistinguishable. It's indistinguishable to them from what real salvation is. So how do you know you don't have evanescent grace, temporary gift of grace that's indistinguishable from real salvation? And you just think it's real salvation. There's no way you could have assurance of salvation then. You could just hope you're one of the elect. This is, I'm sorry, what he, that's being taught there is divine Sadism, okay? God is not sadistic, though. How can I tell if I am elected? Page 26. I want to get the quote right. I mentioned it uh, earlier. Well, you know what? The scriptures are clear that the Lord died for everyone. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, 1 Timothy 6, where I saw he gave himself a ransom for all. 1 John, or it's not 1 John, but John 1, that Jesus uh, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 6, 51, that Jesus said, I'm the bread which gives life to the, uh, the world, which is my flesh. John 12, 32, if I be lifted up, the Son of Man lifted up, he said, I'll draw all men to myself. 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 2, 2 is a propitiation for our sins but not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, it says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Second Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and, and he died for all so that those who might live no longer will live for themselves, but for, for the sake of him who died and was raised. First Timothy four ten, God who's the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Savior of all people? but especially those who believe, how? He provides salvation for all people, but especially those who believe, they're the ones that actually get saved. Romans 5, 8, for God shows his love for us, that's us, we're the saved ones, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that's the elect, I agree with that. 5, 12 says, therefore just as sin came to the world, though a little bit later, through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, but 5, 18 says, and one trespass led to the condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. Romans chapter 11, verse 32, that he shut up all in a condemnation. It's everyone, right? Everyone condemned? Shut up all in a condemnation that he might what? Show mercy on all. That's his heart. Amen? Amen. Now, go to John three sixteen, if you will. That's one verse I didn't quote yet, but it's, it, and it's funny because in this debate, this verse, I think, would be used more than it is. It's such a powerful verse because if you look at the context of the passage, it's mind-blowing. 
Because this verse and its context all by itself destroys Calvinism, destroys limited atonement. And we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, my Calvinist brethren, many of the Calvinists in the past have said, well, the word world there right now, it really means the elect in the world. It means the people, he, he loves the people in the world that are elect. Uh, you know, that's the ones he's talking about there. In fact, R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, when dealing with John 3.16, he robs witness of our Lord's great love for the lost world, claiming that the world should be understood as the elect in the world, stating in his book, Chosen by God, page 206 and 207, the world for whom Christ died cannot mean the entire human family. It must refer to the universality of the elect. So a real, world right there really must mean the elect throughout the world. Is that the compression you got when you read it? No. no, of course not. It's not in the text. The Greek word cosmos world and how it's used in Johannine language and throughout the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the way it's used even in the book of Revelation, is not once ever used of just the elect. This comes from John Owen, a Scottish Calvinist that influenced a lot of Calvinists today like James White and others. John Lowen claims that God hates the non-elect. He says, we deny that all mankind are the objects of that love of which God moved him to send his son and die. We object to that, he says. The fountain and cause of God sending Christ in his eternal love to his elect and them alone. He says on John 3, 16, uh, that God so loved the elect throughout the world. Is that what it says? God so loved the elect throughout the world that he gave his son with this intention that by him believers might be saved. These are scriptural uh, gymnastics. Uh, Edwin H. Palmer, leading Calvinistic teacher, in his book, The Five Points of Calvinist, says, because God loves certain ones and not all, he sent his son for them to save them and not all the world. Wow, man. Calvin himself says, that in his institutes, that sinners that God loved, uh, I'm sorry, he says, uh, is institutes that, quote, can, that God can only love whom he justifies. Arthur Pink, top in his book, Sovereignty of God, which I have, states, quote, uh, that, that the Bible nowhere tells, quote, sinners that God loved them. Really? Remember it says of Jesus talking to the rich man? And it says Jesus loved them, lo looked upon him and loved him. And it says that the rich man, being rich, didn't turn and follow Jesus, turn the other way. There's nothing in Scripture that says he later became a follower of Christ. Again, God says, love your enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies because your Father in heaven loves them. Amen? A. A. Hodge, a leading Calvinistic teacher in his book, The Atonement, admits this. If the non-Calvinists could prove that the love that prompted God to save his son to die as a sin offering has as objects all men, that it would disprove Calvinism. If we could prove that God loves all men, it would disprove Calvinism. That's true. And we could easily prove it. I think we've already done that, but we'll do a little bit more. First of all, this term world. I mean, if you're an honest person and you search out the word world throughout the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, even Revelation, you'll come to the conclusion it never is speaking of the elect of God as though it's speaking of just the elect around the world. Never. That's not how it's used. In fact, D.A. Carson, and if anybody, you know, knows 
who the theologians are out there. D.A. Carson is one of the top Reformed or Calvinist theologians. I've enjoyed some, some of his work greatly. D.A. Carson wrote a little book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, and, or something similar to that. Let me tell you what the actual name is. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Okay, yeah, it's called that. <laughs> Got it right. Uh, he writes about how it's wrong for Calvinists to try to change the meaning of the word cosmos here in the way John uses it. Listen to what he writes. Carson states, quote, and he's a Calvinist. He's, a, he's one of the most respected Calvinist theologians. He says, some try to take cosmos, world here, to refer to the elect. But that really will not do. All the evidence of the usage of the word in John's gospel is against the suggestion. True, world in John does not so much refer to bigness as badness. In John's vocabulary, world is uh, much for uh, as much primary, I'm sorry. In John's vocabulary, world is primarily the moral order in willful and culpable rebellion against God. Well, who's rebellion in rebellion to God? <laughs> we are, right? In John 3.16, God's love. Now listen to this. In John 3.16, Carson writes, God's love in sending the Lord Jesus to be admired, not because it is to be admired, not because it extended to so big a thing, as the world, but so bad a thing, not to so many people as, so, uh, as to such wicked people. Nevertheless, he says, elsewhere, John can speak of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2, thus bringing bigness and badness together. More importantly, in Johannine theology, the disciples themselves once belonged to the world, but were drawn out, 1 John 5, 19. Of this axis, God's love for the world cannot collapse into his love for the elect. He's saying, and he's a Greek scholar. He's written a whole book on Greek fallacies that's championed in, in, you know, in Greek classes. And he's saying, hey, we're blowing it, trying to get out of this and say that. Well, guess what? If the word world does speak of not just degree of badness, but also the whole world, as he mentions, degree of bigness, and it weds the two together. And that's the world that God loved. And it's not the elect, but the world's the big bad world. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That shows he's not only omnibenevolent, right? But the atonement is unlimited. He died for all. Amen? In fact, it's interesting. When I debated the gentleman, I don't know, that must have been like 30-some years ago. When I debated him, and some of you were at that debate, and I felt bad for him, actually. I really did at certain points. Of course, I wanted to make clear my God was exalted and honored as the one who loves people, everyone and died for everyone. But when I did that, I challenged him on his usage of the idea that world doesn't mean all men without exception, but refers to the elect. And I said, let's look at the word elect and let's put it in place of the word world in the Gospel of John and see if it fits. And I used First John, I used Gospel of John 519, I used several scriptures on transparencies. I put them up for everybody to see. And I put the word world, then I took the word world out and put elect there so everybody could see if it fit or not. I took the word, or John 5, 15, 19. In John 15, 19, Jesus says, if you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I said, now let's see if the word elect fits John's usage of the word world there. And then I put up another transparency. And I said, let's see if the word world can mean elect. And then John would have Jesus saying, if you were of the elect, the elect would love you as its own. But because you are not of the elect, he's saying this to his disciples, by the way, but because you're not of the elect, but I chose you out of the elect, therefore the elect hates you. Makes no sense at all. 
But, that's, but the word world isn't the elect. It's the Christ-rejecting, lost, unregenerate world that needs Christ's love, that needs Jesus' death. And that's why we preach the gospel to every creature, amen? That's why we preach the gospel to the whole world. Even John Calvin himself, this is quite interesting. Many Calvinists will contend that John Calvinist did not himself believe he was not a Calvinist himself in regard to limited atonement, that he rejected limited atonement. It's debated within, among the Calvinists. There are many who say, John, John Calvin did not believe in limited atonement. I would say, yeah, he did when he was younger, when he wrote the Institutes. But when he matured, he got older, and he did his commentaries, he rejected it. And there's different theories as to why he seems to contradict himself. I think the reason there's a contradiction is because his Institute, when you write a systematic theology, you try to fit everything together how you believe it's to be fit systematically. And I believe in the Institutes, he believes in a limited atonement. I mean, he talks about how you know, God loves just the ones he justifies and so forth. And there's other statements he makes that look like limited atonement. But when he got older, in his commentaries, he writes things that you're just blown away that are actually really good about how Jesus died for everyone. And that's what happens when you write commentaries because you're dealing more with straight scripture. And commentaries, because you're dealing with scripture, have a way of destroying your systematic. And he destroyed his systematic, just undermined his the whole theology. He should have went back and revised, because he did it several times, his theology. But unfortunately, he didn't. But John Calvin admits, listen to this, quote, it is incontestable that Christ came for the expiation of the sins of the whole world. Can't contest it. He died for the whole world. Calvin states, quote, for faith in Christ brings life to everyone. And Christ brought life because the Heavenly Father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. Calvin also states, quote, he used the broad word whoever, speaking of John, or I'm sorry, speaking of the whoever in John, he used the broad word whoever to invite everyone indiscriminately to share his life and also to leave unbelievers with no excuse. This is the significance of the word world, which is used earlier in this verse. For although there is nothing in the world which deserves God's favor, God shows that he himself is reconciled to the whole world as he invites everyone without exceptions. Catch that? He invites everyone without exceptions to have faith in Christ, which is no less than the entry into life. And it's heavy because he says it's indiscriminate and people are without excuse if they don't come. That's Calvin! In commentating on Romans 5.18, he says, Paul makes grace common to all men, not because it is a fact extends to all, like everybody will be saved, but he says, but because it is offered to all. Although Christ suffered for the sins of the world and it's offered by the goodness of God without distinction to all men, yet not all receive him. In other words, not all are saved because not everyone receives him. Calvin also writes, quote, therefore Christ intends that the benefit of his death should extend to who? Everyone. So that people who exclude anyone from that hope of salvation are doing Christ a disservice. I wish Calvinists would hear that. This is what Calvin said to Calvinists. Therefore, Christ intends the benefit of his death should be extended to everyone. So people who exclude anyone from that hope of salvation are doing Christ a disservice. Now, when you read John 3.16, and he's talking to Nicodemus, you consider the context. Hmm. Time are we supposed to get done? 8.30, I got 15 minutes. Hold on to your seatbelts, okay? Listen to this. When you look at John 3.16, the context is Nicodemus wants to know, because Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus had started this kind of talk, like we know you're from God because no one does these miracles unless he's from God. And Jesus cuts the chase rather than saying, hey, let's talk about my miracles. 
He'll do that later in John. He'll say in John 10, John 14, if you don't believe my words, believe my miracles. Why would he say that? If faith is a gift that you can't, that you accept irresistibly or not. Why does he plead with people? Believe in my miracles if you don't believe my words. Those same people, he says this to them in John chapter five. I'm saying these things to you that you may be saved, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. I take Jesus at his words. When he says I'm saying these things that you may be saved, I, I believe he's not being insincere, he's not lying, he really wants them to be saved. And he puts the onus on them in John five, he says, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. He puts it on them. Not his eternal secret decree that's so secret you can't find it anywhere in the Bible. That's why it's called secret decree because Calvinists made it up. It's not there in Scripture where he decrees most people to be damned without a choice before the foundation of the world. They had no choice. No. Now, in John 3, 16, before you get there, look at John 3, 14 and 15 because he says to Nicodemus, because he says he has to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how do I get born again? Do I come out of my mother's womb again? So we read in John 3, 14, he says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will what? In him have eternal life. I mean, even as all these Jews were dying, their lives were ebbing away because they were in rebellion to God, and God told Moses to put a serpent up on the pole, which was a picture of the atonement and that the wrath of God would fall upon the Messiah. They didn't fully understand that, of course. But whoever looked would become healed, amen? Even so, the Son of Man we lifted up. Now, do you believe if anyone at all looked that they'd be healed and have life? Yes. That's what it says. That's what Jesus said. That's what the scriptures say when you go back to the scripture and read it. You know how many people didn't look, who refused to look? 23,000 died. They didn't look. But the provision for them was what? It was there. Amen? They could have looked. They couldn't have said, well, he didn't want me to look. No. You were being stubborn and you refused to look. Because look at verse 16. Then he says, or verse 15, so whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Because he's going to be lifted up. Then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, which would make no sense, by the way, to say that God so loved the elect, which it doesn't say that whoever of the elect believed in him, which would be nonsense, or God so loved the elect that every one of them believing, well, we, they would automatically believe. But it's for God so loved the world that we've already established, even from Calvinistic leaders that, and by the way, I'm going to tell you something right now. Even though the older Calvinistic, you know, writers and commentators wanted to use the word world and say that really means the elect, very few Calvinistic scholars now are doing that. D.A. Carson and others have said, have warned them, they're saying, yeah, they're not trying to argue that it means the, the saved elect in the world now. Most of them aren't doing that. They recognize it's a fallacy. So instead they're saying, like one I just read a couple days ago, says, yeah, well, he loves the world. You know, a guy that wrote a book called Why I'm Not an Arminian, another, another guy, he says, yeah, it does look like God loves everybody and he has a salvific stance toward the lost world. He admits that. And he says, and our Calvinism does have some rough edges, you know, so he's like, it's kind of rough for us looking at this verse. He admits that. So some will say, yeah, he loves the world and he gave his son for the world, but not really to be saved. There's nothing about the atonement here. God loved the world and he gave his son just to bless them in certain ways before he burns them for eternity, basically is what they're saying. And one said it has nothing to do with the atonement. Really? 
has nothing to do with the atonement. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It has nothing to do with the atonement. Verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the son of man be lifted up. That's a picture of the cross. That's a picture of God's provision back then. His provision now is his son be lifted up. Amen? For the sins of the world. I'm going a little quick because I'm trying to cover so much ground. I'm skipping so much stuff. But it's important to understand that, that the text is very, very clear. In fact, even James White, when he's, he kind of slips, I think when he's debating Dave Hunt and he writes in verses 14 and 15, he talks about how the serpent being lifted up was a provision for every one of them, but only those who looked would get saved. I'm like, there you go. You're right, James. It was a provision for everyone. 23,000 of them didn't get saved. Just like Christ's cross, a provision for everyone, and most people reject him. In fact, look at the very next verse for context. For God did not send his son into the world to what? Judge the world, but that the world might be what? Saved through him. Amen? Amen. Makes no sense. They're not, the people reading this aren't saying, oh, it really means for God did not send his son into the elect to condemn the elect, but rather the elect who will be saved. No, they know. It's about the lost world. In fact, here's more radical evidence. Listen, look at John 3.18. He who believes in him is what? Not judged. So if you believe and you trust in Jesus, you're not going to be judged because he died for your sins. And you're, the Bible says in chapter 6, verse 24, he that believes in Jesus has passed from death to life and shall not come into condemnation. Amen? If you're trusting Jesus right now, you've passed from death to life. If you're trusting Jesus right now, you will not come into condemnation. You are secure in Christ. Amen? If you're trusting Jesus, you do have eternal security. You have assurance. The question is, are you trusting Jesus? That's the key. Amen? He who believes in him is not judged. But look at this. He who does not believe has what? Been judged already. Why? Because he has what? Not what? Believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Come on, think this through. Use your heads, guys. Why would you be judged for rejecting Jesus? Why are you, you're not judged and condemned because you trust him. Why? Because you trust him, you're saved from your sins. But why are you condemned if you don't trust him? It only makes sense is because you're rejecting what he did for you on the cross. That's a context there. Verse 18 makes it real clear that those who are condemned are condemned because they refuse to put their faith in Christ. And verses 19 through 21 makes it really clear that they love darkness more than light. That makes it really, really clear that they are doubly culpable. People that are damned who reject Christ are culpable because they break God's moral law and they're damned and they're under his eternal wrath. But he's provided salvation for them. So now if they reject his provision, now they're culpable for a second reason. You've rejected my son who I gave for you. That's why it says those who don't believe are judged already. Well, Joe, uh, you know, that's your interpretation. No, guess what? That's Calvin's interpretation. Woo, check this out. Calvin wrote, he says, he says, quote, our Lord Jesus suffered for all and there's neither great nor small who is not inexcusable today for we can obtain salvation in him. Unbelievers, listen to this, unbelievers who turn away from him and who deprive themselves of him by their malice are today doubly culpable. For how will they excuse their ingratitude in not receiving and blessing the blessing in which they could share by faith? You catch that? That's John Calvin saying those who reject Christ based on this verse are doubly 
responsible now because they could put their faith in Christ and they refuse to and therefore it's inexcusable. That only makes sense if Jesus died for them and they could put their trust in him and be saved. Now, if Jesus didn't die for them, what John Calvin is saying here is nonsense. Are you following this, guys? Pretty heavy when you think these things through. Again, John Calvin's commentaries, which were written later, contradict his institutes, his systematic theology. By the way, who's the world here that Jesus died for? I think this makes it really clear and I'm surprised more people don't just keep reading because it shows the world, and follow this, for whom Christ loved and that Christ died for, amen, are those who reject him too. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the what? World. And men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So the world that Christ loved, that God so loved, and that Christ died for is the world that loves darkness more than light and refuses to come to Christ. And therefore they're condemned because they had not believed in the one who was given for them. Do you see the context, guys? In fact, I'm telling you right now, if you're talking to a Calvinist and they don't, they, they're like, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if Jesus really died for me. I, I wish I could believe that, you know, but the, take him to John 3, 16, man. Show him the context. Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's telling Nicodemus, a Pharisee, tell him about the serpent that was lifted up. And that's a picture that Jesus has provided. But if they didn't look, they died at the serpent. They die and you're condemned, verse 18, because you refuse to accept the gift. In verse 17, Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's his desire. But the world loved darkness more than light. Brothers and sisters, accept the context and bow down to the mighty word of God Hallelujah. that Jesus died for all. Amen. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. When you go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says of Jesus that he himself is, and that's the subject if you look at verse, the end of verse 1, and he himself, that is Jesus, is a propitiation. That means he's the payment. He's the payment that God gave to satisfy God's wrath against the wicked. To pay for our sins, he's a propitiation. He's the atonement. Listen to what it says. And he himself is a propitiation. Not only for who? Our sins. And for, check this out. His propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but who else? For those of who? The whole world, brothers and sisters. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now, I want to get more into this text here. And I'm looking at that clock. And I want to go to 1 John 2, 2, because it's so strong. Because now it's a whole world. But if I get into it, I'm looking at that clock. And I'm not going to want to stop when I hit 8.30. I want to go a couple more minutes. And that couple more minutes could turn into 10 real easy. And I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to resist the temptation. Who's been praying for me? Good job. <laughs> But somebody else saying, praying the other way. No, finish, more. You know, praise God. You both have, you're all here. You're all here to hear the word of God and grow together. It's awesome. 
Uh, are you guys having a good time tonight? This is called a Bible study, amen? And I'd be remiss if I know that Jesus over and over again is being taught on the airways, television, radios, that we're being taught that he didn't die for the whole world and everything else. And those who know he did don't say much because guess what? Those who know he did don't say much after all. We're, it's just like we're just, we just go and preach the gospel and evangelize and we don't realize there's a war for the heart and the mind in the church and who God is and what he's done and how much he loves us and so forth. And I fight the good fight, man. Lay hold of eternal life. And because God has put me in positions, not just the Netherlands, Right when I first got saved, and I started witnessing. The first person I saw come to Christ, a girl named Gail Johnson, really awesome sister. She was excited about Jesus. She ended up at a Calvinistic church. She had fallen away. My wife and I ran into her. Gail, what's going on? Because she was super drunk at the time. And she said, well, I believe I'm either chosen and I can't be unchosen, so it doesn't matter what I do. Or I'm unchosen and there's nothing I could do to be chosen. It was, that's what we call theological fatalism. She just, nothing really mattered. I've had Calvinists come to me from other churches. Joe, help me with my prayer life. I'm praying ever since I became a Calvinist and learned that everything's determined. I don't even know how to pray anymore. I've had a number of people, as I mentioned, doubting whether that Jesus loved them, died for them. Had people come to me recently, in the last few weeks, from another church struggling with that. And that shows me it's all over the place. In the Netherlands, man, I went through that over and over again meeting people that were like that. Black stocking churches where Calvinism really got rooted and started, went, left Geneva into the Netherlands and where the Council of Dort took place. And you have people in black stocking churches and they lift up their babies and they say they praise God that their brand new baby is dedicated to the fires of hell if they're not elected by God. That's turning God into a monster. Let the little children come to me for if such is the kingdom of God. That's the heart of God, amen. amen. You guys, dig your feet in the ground in these scriptures, man. Praise God for John 3, 16. Amen? Amen. I'll tell you, man, uh, I just hope and pray that you all recognize what a wonderful Savior we definitely have and uh, how awesome he is, man. You need to apply this to your lives. You apply it in worship because you say, Lord, you're not only holy, holy, holy. You're not only perfectly just and perfectly righteous. You're not only all-knowing. Not only, the word of God is not only inerrant and you're not only perfect in wisdom and knowledge, but you're also omnibenevolent. Don't limit him on his love. You're also all-loving. Amen? He's infinite in his love as well. The question, but the thing is, is God also wants you to make a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. Amen? And let's say what Joshua is for me in my house, we will Serve the Lord, amen. First, or Jonah 2.8 says, those who cling to worthless idols forsake the grace that could be theirs. There's grace available. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Amen. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The question is whether or not you will bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ as your Lord. And we'll pick this up next week because I'm, I actually had something planned for next week along with this part two of totally some other verses, but I'll, I'll end, I'll go back into First John because that was going to be a shorter message, so, which I knew would get filled out, but it's getting filled out tonight with this, you know? But I'm excited about it because if there's anything you should know is that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, that he wills that you would be saved, and that he wants you in heaven, and that he wants you, there's so much, he literally 
was, he bled to save you and took the wrath of God upon himself to get you there, amen? Let's not compromise that message and let's not look at people wondering if he died for them. But as Paul said, that Christ begs through us that God, because he's not holding the trespasses of the world against them, but crying out to them and begging them to be reconciled to God, amen? That's our job, recognizing that he loves everyone and therefore there's not gonna be any racism, there's not gonna be any elitism because guess what? The Bible says God is not partial. Salvation is for the Jew and also the Greek. Amen. Love you guys. Can we all stand?